Paul Cotman has himself been, if I may say so, an event in Shakespeare studies. Um, he sprang upon the consciousness of Shakespeare studies with a book which addresses the historicity or the, um, the uh, phenomenology of the stage as an event, A Politics of the Scene in 2008, which is followed up with another book very quickly after that um, on the tragic conditions in Shakespeare. He's the editor of an enormously uh, influential and powerful collection of essays, Philosophers on Shakespeare. And his work has the uh, rational, logical inevitability of an event that was waiting to happen. After the event, we all looked at ourselves and wondered how it hadn't been done before. But it had never been done before, and it had never been done with the kind of philosophical flair as well as literary imagination that Cotman, Paul Cotman brings to his work. I would say that of all Shakespeareans working today, we're privileged to be in the presence of one who has done more than ever to put the agenda of Shakespeare and philosophy before current Shakespeare studies. Shakespeare and philosophy is in some sense bound up with the work of Paul Cotman. And it's with that sense of Shakespeare as an event that I ask you to welcome our thinker of eventuality, Paul Cotman, today. Well, thank you very much for that warm welcome. It's, it's lovely to be here. I hope it feels as much um, like a vacation to you as it does to me as I look out at the, the view outside the temple here. By the time that Hegel composed his lectures on fine art in the 1820s, where the Shakespeare cult was at its pinnacle in Germany, um, by that time Shakespeare was venerated as the bard of northern Europe such that in Goethe's words, quote, a life without Shakespeare was barely a life at all. But not long before that, when, when Gotthold Lessing, in a text written in 1759, so just a year after the sculpture that um, is behind me, was, uh, well, the replica of which is behind me, um, was made, Lessing was the first to assert that Shakespeare's tragedies were the equal of Sophocles. And so Garrick was remarkably prescient. I mean, he was really among the very first English to, um, to take seriously Shakespeare in the way that the Germans were doing. In 1773, just a few years later, Herder published the definitive version um, of an essay of his simply called Shakespeare. There were three versions total. And it's in that text that I think um, something of Garrick's classicism and modernity come together. So Herder thought that it's in Shakespeare that a debate over how or whether to engage Shakespeare's drama as something more than a polemic over whether or not Shakespeare was sufficiently classicist, finally was overcome. So to Herder, Shakespeare was um, the harbinger of modernity, of Northern Europe, who was to be read not in terms of received notions of genre, but rather with the thought that formal rules of poetics of tragedy were useless for understanding Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare's drama had to solve for itself again and again with each play what it meant to be a dramatic work. So it's probably not too much to say that Shakespeare's drama offered to Herder and the Germans of the period something that would become emblematic of the problem of modern art more generally, namely the vanishing of a classicism, the vanishing of a presumed universality of social roles, norms, and ideals, a concomitant experience of freedom and self-determination, so that Shakespeare, you could say, narrated for them the experience of individuals etched in the absence of a governing culture, which amounts to saying that a classical philosophy of art, a Greek philosophy of art, Aristotle say, couldn't help them understand it. So with this in mind, with this ambition, as Herder called it, to find a new Aristotle for Shakespeare, um, I want to ask today for the next 40 minutes or so, I will try not to talk for longer than that, the following question, how might we, with Herder's and Hegel's help, arrive at a reasonable answer to the question, what is Shakespearean tragedy, where the answer isn't of new poetics? In other words, isn't a generic description of the, um, of the standard features of a Shakespearean tragedy. 
If it's not a poetic question, then what kind of question is what is Shakespearean tragedy? Such a question might understandably prompt one to start listing distinctive features of various plays by Shakespeare as if, a, as if an enumeration of its characteristics would amount to an understanding of the genre. And to a certain extent, these kinds of inventories are hard to avoid when you talk about Shakespearean drama. Moreover, many descriptions of what A.C. Bradley famously called the facts of Shakespearean tragedy are undeniably true and really useful. For example, it's illuminating to observe with Bradley that Shakespeare's tragedies present what he called, quote, a story of exceptional calamity leading to the death of a man in high estate, where the protagonist always contributes in some measure to the disaster in which he, in which he perishes, and where this active contribution means not just things done between sleep and wake, but, I'm still quoting, acts of omission through expre thoroughly expressive of the doer, characteristic deeds, is what Bradley called it. So I love Bradley, and I'll come back to Bradley, but rather than approach Shakespearean tragedy as the sum total of certain features or facts, here's my suggestion for the next uh, 40 minutes or so. With Hedras and Hegel's help, I propose that we see Shakespearean tragedy as the birth of a distinctive art form, a discrete form of art, roughly the same way as we think of painting on canvas as a discrete art form, or symphonic music as a discrete art form, born at some place at a particular time. After all, whereas a genre purports to be a mere collection of objects that, sit, that share taxonomically graspable features, there's no list of features that add up to Shakespearean tragedy. It's difficult to distinguish between Macbeth, Hamlet, and Othello on that basis. Rather, we want to say something like this, that each new play brings to light different expressive possibilities for this art form, helping us to better discern it as such. Should that Shakespearean tragedies show what they are as an art form in light of one another? A kind of family resemblance, as Wittgenstein likes to say. For the same reason, although it's somewhat unconventional to say so, I'd like us to think about Shakespearean tragedy not just as a canonical collection of plays by William Shakespeare, Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth, and Lear, but as a novel artistic practice instanced with special power in the range of works by Shakespeare, but still practicable afterward. So that Shakespeare may have been the first to work in the medium of Shakespearean tragedy, but he wasn't the last. And I'm putting it this way because this was how the Germans tried to talk about Shakespeare. So Schlegel, for example, Friedrich Schlegel, thought of Shakespeare as having invented the modern novel. This is what he had in mind. So to see Shakespearean tragedy as a distinctive art form is to see it as a practice that, having originated at some place and some time, with Shakespeare in this instance, takes on a life of its own by generating new techniques and characteristics. And so behind this, I have a thought that art forms or practices take upon themselves to work through or make sense of their own social, historical, and material preconditions, as if expressing a newly discovered need for this kind of sense-making. And this gets me to the question I really want to raise today. What does the art form, if it is, if I'm not wrong, a new art form, what does the art form of Shakespearean tragedy work through, respond to, or make sense of? And I want to propose one hypothetical answer to this. Shakespearean tragedy works through it tries to make sense of, the loss of any given nature, God, or fate that might explain human societies, actions, destinies, and values. At the same time, Shakespearean tragedy works through the loss of social bonds, military, economic, kinship, familial, upon which we depend for the meaning and worth of our lives together. In this way, Shakespearean tragedy helps us to make sense of how we interact with one another without the help of any Archimedean standpoint, with only the interactions themselves as sources of intelligibility and meaning. So in Shakespearean tragedy, to put it in the formula, our actions must explain themselves, which puts a lot of burden on us. We have to think about that. Although I can't possibly do justice to these three claims in the time I have available to me today, I want to at least try to convince you they're not misguided and that this sets us in the right horizon when it comes to thinking about Shakespearean tragedy. So how then does Shakespearean tragedy work through the loss of any givens, God, nature, or fate that might explain our interactions? Consider, 
And here's where Hegel becomes useful. I know Hegel on a Saturday morning at 10 a.m. is a bit of a, a cold shower. So I'll try to, I'll try to give you the, the schematic version. Just take what I need from Hegel. Bit of plundering. Consider that according to Hegel, all artistic practices are ways we try to evaluate and make sense of our lives, of our social world, of its demands materially and culturally, of the claims of nature upon us, whatever those are felt to be at a given place and time. Artistic practices are not the only way we do this. Hegel famously thought there was the kind of holy trilogy, art, religion, and philosophy. He thought these were the key ways human beings try to make sense of themselves and their world. But by defining art in this grandiose way, what we earn is the suggestion that artistic practices are, like religion and philosophy, fundamental ways we find out who we are and who we might become in light of the material and social conditions we inherit. That was the Enlightenment ambition in thinking about Shakespeare, was to try to make Shakespeare help us do that. So to put it in the way that Hegel and the Germans would once have put it, art is the way we come to understand ourselves both as objects in the world, bodies in motion, finite mortal creatures exposed to the claims of social norms and the laws of physics, so objects on the one hand, and as subjects on the other. This was the real German edition. How is it that we can understand ourselves as objects that can be coerced and moved about, and as subjects capable of leading a life, directing a life, reflecting on a life, both at the same time. And Hegel thought art, like religion and philosophy, was pretty much all we have as a way of figuring out how we're subjects and objects at once. So that what we should do is look to how artistic transformations over time between different media, from sculpture to architecture to painting to music and ultimately to drama, help us make sense of this. So Hegel's discussion in his lectures on fine art are useful in this context for two reasons. First, Hegel provided a way of talking about dramatic poetry and Shakespearean drama in particular in terms of our need for self-understanding in the way I just described. I don't know if you've ever looked at Hegel's lectures on fine art. They're thousand-odd pages long. Shakespeare comes at the end as if Hegel thought Shakespeare was the pinnacle. He did think, he says so, the pinnacle of human artistic achievement, full stop. It's an amazing claim. It seems to me it needs more play in Shakespeare studies, um, more explaining. Second, Hegel's useful because he struggled to articulate the distinctiveness of Shakespearean tragedy with respect to ancient tragedy and above all with respect to his own powerful interpretations of Antigone and Oedipus. For Hegel, the development of artistic practices, of historically shifting context-specific needs for different art forms, as well as internal developments within the arts over time, prevent, sorry, present an ongoing and increasing denaturalization or spiritualization of our self-understanding. What does Hegel mean by that? He means the more we see ourselves as, the more we teach ourselves that we are free and self-determining subjects, the less we're dependent upon or needful of artistic expressions that work with natural or sensible material, stone, wood, clay, in order to understand ourselves and our world. And the twist in Hegel's story is that sensuous representational artistic practices are or have been a primary way we teach ourselves this lesson. Because by transforming natural materials and modes that we can regard as not based on material necessity, we express our own liberation and in this way become free. Art claims Hegel in a famous passage, this is the only one I'll cite all day long, is, quote, a way human beings strip the external world of its inflexible foreignness and enjoy in the shape of things only an external realization of ourselves. And once this lesson is absorbed, that is, once we see ourselves as increasingly liberated from the demands of nature, inasmuch as the terms of our self-understanding are less and less limited by something out there called nature or God or the one or whatever, we find ourselves less needful of the works by which we taught ourselves this lesson. And Hegel thought this ongoing denaturalization in the arts unfolded within artistic practices as an awareness of artistic practices as medium-specific. This is a hard and weird thought, but the idea can be 
I think, clarified by two simple examples. Hegel thought, for example, classical Greek architecture manifested a higher awareness of its own status as architecture in the work than did earlier symbolic works. Likewise, to move closer to Shakespeare, thinking along these lines led Hegel to say that dramatic poetry, not just Shakespeare, but dramatic poetry, is, quote, the highest stage of poetry and art generally, because, I'm still quoting Hegel, in contrast to the other perceptible materials, stone, wood, color, and notes, speech alone is the element worthy of the expression of human spirit. So if artistic practices are medium-specific modes of self-understanding, goes the thinking here, then what medium or form could be more adequate to our own self-understanding than that which we know to be ours from the get-go, not some natural material ripped out of a quarry, but human actions, circumstances, predicaments, situations, words, gestures, elements of culture. And second, because such elements are the stuff of dramatic poetry, to work in the dramatic arts entails a degree of self-awareness missing from, say, early symbolic sculptures, so that dramatic poetry is inherently more self-reflexive than sculpture, painting, or the arts, because its medium, speech and action, is from the start denaturalized, spiritual. And so this is the point I want to underscore from my discussion today. Drama is already formally freer from nature, from external, self -deter from external determination, than the other arts. And therefore, here's what interested Hegel about Shakespeare, drama is freer when it comes to determining its own content, what it's about. And Hegel thought that that freedom expanded over time, so that by the time we got from Sophocles to Shakespeare, Shakespeare could be about anything, had he wanted. None of this is to deny that Shakespearean tragedy requires for its formal viability, at a minimum, the concrete material resources of early modern performance spaces, the physical capacities of the playhouse or the court, the lungs of the actors, the imaginary forces of an audience prepared to receive and appreciate what they're seeing and hearing, certain financial economic conditions, and so on. But these requirements, and here I hope the ghost of David Garrick will agree with me, these requirements amount to something only like a prehistory for the art form of Shakespearean tragedy, its initial material condition of possibility. For while those elements allowed Shakespearean tragedy to come into the world, they've not amounted since Shakespeare to any ongoing limitation on or exhaustive explanation for the vitality of the art form or its expressive possibilities. Once brought to life, Shakespearean tragedy has proven capable of flourishing even in the absence of these material conditions on celluloid in classrooms in reflections of solitary readers in a variety of foreign settings, performance spaces that bear little or no resemblance to those Shakespeare knew, and so on. Pushing this thought a bit further then, I want to suggest that the vitality of dramatic poetry in Hegel's sense is less formally restricted than the other arts by the sensuous conditions that make up its prehistory. So in this sense, dramatic poetry is, in general is freer, more modernist than the other arts. For instance, drama can contain music without being reducible to a musical performance, can contain dance without being confused with an occasion to move one's body about, can contain spectacles without being confused with mere show. Think of the way that the Tempest plays with this, you know, when Prospero calls up all that stuff, music and spirits and dance, and then says, go away. It's as if he's just, Shakespeare's just playing with this and saying, here's what the theater is, what it can do. It can contain all the other media without being reducible to any of them. So at the same time, this formal freedom that dramatic poetry enjoys with respect to the other arts is commensurate, as I was saying, with its freedom to determine its own content. It's formally freer and therefore contentfully freer. It can do that hard work of working through the loss of given, as I was alluding to earlier. And the more the dramatic poetry decides for itself its own content, likewise, as if by boomerang, the greater its formal capacities for expressiveness. It's less inhibited by its material prehistory. Once artworks no longer need, then, to be about this or that content out there, a material purpose, an animal quarry, a god, a creation myth, a moral lesson, or some epical historical event, the more they're freed up to determine for themselves their own content. And this freeing up is perhaps just the last turn and wrinkle in the argument, 
is perhaps most clearly manifested when artworks start to be about themselves. So think of all of Shakespeare's meta-theatrical moments where it's as if the theater's reflecting on or trying to some way be about its own expressive possibilities. So these are all the reasons, I'll just try to list them, that Hegel thinks dramatic poetry ranks as the highest, most prevalently spiritual artistic practice, and why he thought that among modern dramatists, quote, you'll scarcely find any who can be compared with Shakespeare. And so although Hegel doesn't say so explicitly, I think we can infer from my highly condensed account here that Shakespeare's preeminence in Hegel's account in the history of human art development should have something to do with his heightened self-reflexivity of Shakespearean drama and its corresponding achievement of both formal and contentful freedom. And that's its break with classicism, as Herder had intuited a generation earlier when he took issues with neoclassical objections to Shakespeare. Classical rules, thought Herder, are of no help for understanding Shakespearean tragedy. Hence, we have to think for about the, on, about the ongoing revisions in Shakespeare's work, the feeling that somehow Cymbeline and the Winter's Tale rework and revisit Othello or King Lear, and that each new comedy is a self-critical vision of its predecessor. As Herder knew, at issue was not only Shakespeare's lack of alleged po poetics, his unraveling of plot, for example. I don't know, those of you who teach Shakespeare, Plot is perfectly useless as a way of teaching Shakespeare. You know, when you go to the theater with your friend, if you do this for a living, you'll always sit down at the play to watch The Tempest, and your friend will say to you, kind of elbow you as you're hustling to your seat, what's the story again? Remind me, you know? And you have to sort of say, well, there's this duke, you know, he was in Milan. <laughs> it's impossible plots. So, you know, the neat Aristotelian plot structure, which is just how the consequential separation of deed from the recognition of that deed, turnaround or peripatia that Aristotle described. Aristotle thought that was the vehicle for understanding the meaning and the significance of human actions, that separation of deed from the recognition of the consequence. None of that works in Shakespeare, ever. I can't think of a single place it works. So, you know, Herodot wasn't wrong to think we needed a new way to understand if plot wasn't going to do it, what's going to be the new way to think about Shakespearean tragedy. I'm trying to suggest some here today. So along these lines, we should also recall the often overlooked fact that while earlier dramatic forms like the Greek or Roman theater or English morality plays were also, of course, art forms that were inextricable, that they were inextricable elements of social rituals. They were civic duties, liturgical practices, state-sponsored public entertainment, and so forth. I apologize for my reading. I'm at that age where I can't see with my glasses or without my glasses. I'm constantly doing this. So Shakespearean tragedy, unlike those earlier dramatic forms, can't rely upon and therefore frees itself from the essentiality of a ritual social context, as so many have noted in the precarious and ambiguous status of theatrical practices in Shakespeare's London, not to mention in the years since then. So that Shakespearean tragedy, we could say, with Herder is forged in the collapse of a dominant unified culture that can sustain and justify its existence. Corollary to this, Shakespearean tragedy cannot take for, for granted just what it is supposed to depict content-wise, or why. If Aeschylus and Sophocles had at least some sense of what the appropriate purview of tragedy was, for example, the relationship between family life and city life, or the struggle between ancient religious beliefs, or then contemporary political values, or the choreography of protagonists and polis, the chorus, then Shakespearean tragedy has far fewer such productive limitations. So even though, of course, Shakespeare continued to represent historically significant figures, princes, kings, generals, and the like, as well as apparently universal concerns, death, family life, and sex, he nevertheless leaves us with no sense that he knew conclusively, unlike Sophocles, just what he was supposed to show us about any of those things. And by the same token, this explains why we see Shakespeare as possessed as needing to be possessed, and this is just courses through Herder's essay on Shakespeare, of far more imaginative energy than Sophocles. Shakespeare continually expands his dramatic vision to include whores, merchants, beggars, children, and spirits in a seemingly endless variety of worldly contexts to the point where we, modern interpreters, directors, actors, and students, must also imaginatively choose how and where to present these multifarious Shakespearean works, which seem suitable to so many domains, and hence representative of no single particular viewpoint on human life. 
Recall that prior to Shakespeare, after all, dramatic poetry by and large presented or relied upon a generic, standard, universalizing view of the connection between human actions and the natural or social or divine context for those actions. That is to say, very schematically for the sake of discussion, pre-dramatic, pre-Shakespearean drama worked through some vision of the relationship between the natural, social, or divine horizon for human actions and those actions, which could thereby be weighed, measured against that horizon. There is, for example, the moral divine horizon of English morality plays. Greek tragedy, too, presents a certain vision of the connections between human actions, human culture, and a set of natural facts. To compose the plot of a Greek tragedy meant, as Aristotle suggested, to grasp the unity of an individual's time and place. It entailed supposing a view of the whole, of someone's relation to the natural or social world of which he's a part, so that Sophocles, for example, saw and had to see that Oedipus was both king of Thebes, hence Eucasta's husband, and Eucasta's son, and Sileus's murderer, in order to show how Oedipus himself was brought to see the whole picture by means of the reversals and recognitions of which Aristotle spoke. So while Oedipus's view of things at the outset of Sophocles's play is partial and subjective and limited, he thinks he's Eucasta's husband, blind to the fact he's also his son, Events bring him to see the whole picture, to know everything that Sophocles, the audience, and the soothsayer already know. Shakespeare, by contrast, shows us how different situations look from the standpoint of particular individuals, Hamlet, for example, as well as from other standpoints on those individuals and that situation, Claudius, Gertrude, Polonius, Ophelia, Horatio, each of whom has a subjective worldview of their own, without ever showing us how those individual points of view coincide in a panoptic whole. In fact, you could say the action of a Shakespearean drama is invariably motivated by the non-coincidence of these multiple points of view, the sheer lack of an objective view on subjective stances. Think, for example, of the way that differing perspectives on Hamlet's behavior drive much of what actually occurs in the play Hamlet or the way that what an audience perceives about Macbeth's response at the banquet to the murder of Banquo does not correspond to how others in the play see things, or of how the friars' retelling of the lover's actions at the end of Romeo and Juliet necessarily misses so much of what matters to the audience, the balcony scene, the morning obad, and so on. In this way, Shakespeare forces us to regard any perspectives on human actions as deeply provisional, historically bounded, contextually determined, which is to say that no character in Shakespeare and no audience in a Shakespeare play ever learns the whole truth or gains a panoptic perspective on human actors in the world. Quite the contrary. In King Lear, for example, Lear or Gloucester's blindness to the standpoints of their respective children is never never subsequently reversed into insight by the unintended consequences of their deeds. Even when events seem to be cleared up at the end of a Shakespearean drama, for example, the way that revelations come tumbling one after the other at the end of Cymbeline, we're not left with a sense of clarity and insight, but with more questions than ever. Nor the time nor place will serve our long interrogatories, admits the baffled King Cymbeline at the end of the play's close. If you remember, that always line gets, that line always gets laughs you know, when it's performed. So our sense of closure at the conclusion of a Shakespearean play is belied by our sense that the fate of one or more of the characters remains deeply unresolved or unexplained by the actions we've witnessed. Even our clarity about what is wrong is broken or diminished. So that whereas in the Greek tragedy it it matters tremendously that at least the terms of the crisis, if not of the solution, are clear, in Shakespeare we're denied even that clarity. Will Iago confess once back in Venice? What will become of the broken kingdom at the end of King Lear? Why, if Shakespeare meant to invoke a legend according to which Banquo was King James's ancestor, is Malcolm and not Fleance crowned at the conclusion of Macbeth? And what's the connection between, say, this broader history and Macduff's role as as Macbeth's assassin? One could go on and on with these kinds of questions. I raise them only to point out, making one point, that in Shakespeare's subjective, individual points of view, and an objective account of the way things stand never coincide. So having said all this, I hope we can begin to see how Shakespearean tragedy responds to the loss of any given nature, God, or fate that might explain human society's actions, relationships, and values. Shakespeare challenges us to understand tragedies not as responding to existential givens, 
desire or mortality, or historical situations only, Henry V's invasion of France or the fate of the Roman Republic, but rather as responding to the fact that there are no givens that govern our dramatic activity. To say it all at once, Shakespearean tragedy displays our provisional self-determination as subjects in the world, while asking us to see our actions as nevertheless intelligible, as somehow meaningful, something more than the mere vanity of so-and-so doing such-and-such. So the loss of givens, the death of the old gods, the devaluation of our highest values, to invoke Nietzsche, that Shakespeare works through, does not, I think, leave us with a desperate nihilism, but rather with the sense that it's precisely this loss of givens that finally allows us to see ourselves as provisionally free and rational, as reckoning with the implications of our new self-understanding, and as capable of understanding our actions with nothing but our actions to help us. And that's why in Shakespearean tragedy, subjective freedom comes to light through, or in some cases as, the dissolution of social bonds on which we rely, kinship ties, civic relations, economic dependencies, or political allegiances. The ritual practices that had sustained prior traditional forms of life, funerary rites, the performance of noble or honorable deeds, military service, conventional uses of languages, ritual ways of bequeathing the material world or formal modes of punishment or retribution, all of these appear in Shakespearean tragedy as perverse, inadequate, or even irrational. As a result, the meaning of our actions cannot derive from their recognizable adherence to or transgression of this or that norm. Macbeth welcomes Duncan as his kinsman, his subject, and his host, all of which should lead Macbeth to shut the door on the murderer, not bear the knife himself, and yet, by killing Duncan, Macbeth becomes king. So to what are we to attribute Macbeth's actions and their outcomes? Similarly, Hamlet can be identified with any number of deeds, and yet no one knows exactly how to understand his actions in view of collective reasons for acting. What to make of his behavior after his father's death, or of his treatment of Ophelia, or of his slaughter of Polonius, or of his subsequent refusal to treat Polonius's dead body with appropriate care. Think, for example, of when Gertrude says to Hamlet after he's killed Polonius, Oh me, what hast thou done? And Hamlet looks to her as if he expects an answer from her, from the audience. Yeah, I know not. You tell me. What have I done? And yet, Hamlet seeks the meaning of his actions and the clarity of others' responses. His social world, however, seems incapable of answering him beyond expressing incomprehension or sending him away. Hamlet's task, then, it seems, is not to figure out how best to carry out what's being asked of him, revenge, filial love, or loyalty to the court, but to try to lead his own life under the realization that none of those demands, each of which is incompatible with the other, can be sufficiently motivating. In his lectures on fine art, I'm drawing to my conclusion, Hegel saw that Shakespearean tragedy, quote, takes for its proper subject matter the inner life of characters who is not, as in classical tragedy, a purely individual embodiment of ethical powers. In other words, the interests, aims, and actions of Shakespeare's characters are not fully absorbed or explained by those of the family, the church, the state, and so on. Which is why even a minor character in Shakespeare can stand out to us as an individual who might be interestingly played by actors in diverse ways, with different tics, motivations, and so on. But Hegel nevertheless wanted to hold to the belief that, quote, in human actions, some end drawn from the concrete spheres of family, state, and church is never missing. So for Hegel, our actions invariably throw us into what he called the sphere of the real world and its particular concerns. What he meant is that tragedies show us how our actions invariably implicate us in a broader social world, and by the same token, how the fate of that world unfolds through our actions. So if there aren't any worldly consequences to our actions, they don't appear as actions at all, thought Hegel. And this left Hegel deeply puzzled about Shakespearean tragedy or Shakespearean characters. Hegel doesn't often admit he's confused, but here he is admitting he's confused, um, right about Shakespeare. He says, I'm quoting, the aims of Shakespeare's characters are broadly and variously particularized and in such detail that what is truly substantial can often glimmer through them only in a very dim way, end quote. 
I don't know about you, but dim glimmerings of substantial universals seems a hopelessly inadequate way of thinking about, say, um, Cordelia's response to Lear or um, Regan and Goneril's affection for Edmund. That's a dim glimmering of a universal form? Really? How? <laughs> so it seems true what Hegel says, but also inadequate. Think of how Shakespeare's frequent and diverse explorations of the vicissitudes of sexual love reveal attachments between individuals to which society, however, is utterly blind or by which social commitments can't be explained. Desdemona's father, for instance, openly declares he cannot see the meaning of his daughter's desire for Othello. Or when Romeo and Juliet, at the end of, of, of Verona, um, kill themselves, families can't really bring themselves to treat their deaths as suicides. They don't even know what that would mean exactly. They've died. The friar tells a story about how they've died. But that story doesn't begin to capture what we've watched happen. And it seems woefully inadequate to say, well, they died, but at least Verona became peaceful, you know, the way that the chorus does. I mean, that just doesn't get close to explaining what goes on in the play. So that's Hegel's conundrum. It's as if then Shakespearean tragedy shows us how we can or do lose external ethical cultural reasons or explanations for our actions without, however, losing all moral motivation whereby moral I mean not a transcendent set of orienting values, but just this, a lived experience of ourselves as not utterly worthless, base, or expendable, as if we're capable perhaps of finding some other way of justifying ourselves to each other, some other way of becoming or being that justification in our actions, as if the moral stakes of our actions were best glimpsed precisely when conventional, shared, ethical justifications, family, state, church, fail. When we have no other reason for what we say or do to offer one another, aside from ourselves. I think King Lear is the best representation of this. I'll close with some remarks on that in two seconds. I'm almost done, I promise. I know it's hard to listen to all this. Shakespeare offers, so says Hegel, quote, the finest example of firm and consistent characters who come to ruin simply because of a decisive adherence to themselves. Hegel's contemporary, the English critic William Hazlick, for whom, um, who along with his friend Coleridge had been so influenced by the German enthusiasm for Shakespeare, also emphasized the importance of character type in his characters of Shakespeare's plays from 1813. A.C. Bradley's 1904 lectures on Shakespeare offer the most sustained and influential elaboration of this thought. In Shakespearean tragedy, Bradley writes, action is essentially the expression of character. So complete 180 reversal of Aristotle. Finally, Bradley, 1904. So I understand Bradley's insight to be as follows. Shakespeare's tragedy displays human beings not as representational figures acting on behalf of a given way of life or a value greater than themselves, but as somehow staging themselves as agents leading lives rather than merely suffering what befalls them. So rather than ask us to grasp what Antony's fate means for Rome or what Hamlet's fate means for Denmark, Shakespeare invites us to determine why or if Antony or Hamlet's actions matter without relying on Rome or Denmark to do the work and indeed showing Rome and Denmark to be collapsible, that Rome and Tiber melt, all that wonderful dramatic stuff. All of which forces us to ask, can we matter to one another not only in virtue of what we might represent, but also, also with nothing to offer but ourselves? our self-expressive deeds? Can we recognize one another as individual actions in the world in our very ordinariness as of extraordinary worth? All of this, as I said, coalesce, coalesces with particular intensity in King Lear, so here's where I'll end. No other Shakespearean tragedy, to my mind, opens with a more firmly established and secure social world, almost fairy tale like and yet none finishes with a more profound sense of worldly loss, where the viability of any intergenerational substantial ethical sphere is in question. At the same time, by the play's end, our concern for the fate of the kingdom has been altogether replaced by our efforts to understand the state of the relationships in the play, by the characters' attempts to understand each other. 
At the opening, Lear strives to outlive the necessity of his natural death for the transmission of the kingdom in order to definitively separate the intergenerational life of his society from its moorings in a natural cycle of life and death, growth and decay. By denying the necessity, as I understand what he does, he denies the necessity of his own natural death for the transmission of the kingdom. And by doing so, Lear would seek to denaturalize society, free intergender in, to free intergenerational devolution from the claims of nature, so as to bring about his own re-entrance into the world, his own rebirth, and make clear that his presence among others is a self-determining social reality, not a natural fact. With sovereign autonomy, he would lay his natural life at the feet of others for their approval or disapproval. So for the sake of testing, really testing, his daughter's love, Lear strips himself of accommodation in order to see if he'll be accommodated. For the truest test of love will not lie in a rhetorical demonstration, but in whether or not his daughters, without being legally, ethically, or ritually required to do so, will take his aging body into their homes, tolerate its inevitable failings, and let Lear crawl unburdened toward death. In thinking to set his rest on Cordelia's kind nursery, Lear not only denied, desired the chance to be loved as himself, rather than just as king or as father, but he also wanted his desire to be seen in his otherwise puzzling actions, his self-divestment as a demand for recognition. For Lear, the possibility of loving Cordelia and of being loved by her is something that neither nature nor the kingdom, with all its prerogatives or wealth, can furnish, and yet it's a possibility that might be achieved by Lear's letting go of the kingdom, and that can only be achieved again if the kingdom's duree is no longer tethered to a natural cycle of birth and decay. For the same reason, things go awry when Lear and Cordelia, whenever they misguide, um, things go awry for Lear and Cordelia, whenever they misguidedly turn to some external or natural social justification for their actions or for their demands of one another. For example, when, when Lear says to Cordelia, in effect, because I'm your father, a sovereign power, because I gave you all, or when, Lear, when Cordelia says on her part, because I'm your child, the fruits of your loins, because I know I'm your joy. In thinking they have the right, whether by natural or positive law, ethical substance, to be loved, respected, or acknowledged, they set themselves up for the awakening that being loved or acting on one's own are not rights to which one can be socially or naturally entitled. What they fail to see in such moments, then, is that they have nothing to offer one another, no reason, except themselves, and that they themselves count as meaningful offerings only by being recognized and loved and recognized as such in turn. That being loved and loving make our worldly rights and social entitlements worth having, not the reverse, is something that can perhaps only be learned by the sting of being put down, finding oneself to be rebuked or unloved or from the remorse that comes with having injured a loved one. And that's why as soon as he feels himself unloved by Cordelia, Lear throws the kingdom away. The world he was about to bestow was meaningful to him only so long as he thought that by bequeathing it on his own terms, he might bring about the possibility of finally leaving a life with Cordelia on their terms. It's as if the worth of our shared world, of our lives together, were determined by the success or failure in being or somehow becoming worthwhile for one another. Success in this enterprise demands that we somehow inhabit others' lives, imagine for ourselves what they would do, what they want from us, why they act as they do. Shakespearean tragedy, tragedy in working through a loss of givens responds to this demand. That's the talk. Thank you so much for opening this conference with um, a really um, powerful and, and scintillating um, preview of a book that we are waiting for, Romantic <laughs> Love, Freedom and Romantic Love. I see a very strong premonition there uh, in your finale it's on its way. Of, 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 of the book that we're very much expecting on, on Romantic Love. We perhaps have a few moments for, uh, because this is a symposium, um, and there will, I'm sure, be wine later, uh, for uh, some discussion. Uh, I know that um, uh, 
time is pressing, but I would very much welcome, and I'm sure uh, Paul would as, as well, wish. some response from the audience. <coughs> Edward Cheney. Oh, well, that was, I was twitching my pen, but I was thinking you about you, but you never, never first. But, um, oh, God. Well, um, and now I'm just going to, well, this is you know, incredibly clear, and um, it's a disability issue. Uh, it's obviously talked. Now, my line of questioning will seem very crude, as it happened, but I, I was just thinking about the dreadful state of art here, that Hegel's art of optimism, <laughs> optimism about getting rid of all the givens, and what it's led us to, you know, then in the 19th ATM, and then much worse in the... Yeah. Highest vocation, um, yeah. And, so and I think in Shakespeare, as a sort of um, a much less Christian, depressive, um, compared to that um, Protestant Aquinas that Hegel was sometimes known as, um, does that does that underpin some of what you're talking about? Well, it does. Optimism, really, yes. So your question is about what our contemporary need for art is, well, if we have one. In his time, I mean, what he said at the beginning of the lectures on fine art was that art in its highest vocation remains for us a thing of the past. Those are his words. And um, that's produced a, um, um, an enormous amount of commentary and worrying. Um, um, what on earth Hegel meant by that? Straightforwardly, he seems to have meant that we, part of what he means is quite simple, namely that we no longer organize our social lives at the highest level around art making. We're not Greek, so that we don't devote all of, we're not Egyptian for that matter, we're not, we don't devote all of our material resources to the production of what we've come to think of as artworks. And that, um, that we have many other practices, economic practices for example, that um, are other modes of intelligibility through which we work out what kind of creatures we are. So Hegel thought art had waned in its importance. That much of the claim is, let's say, familiar from other thinkers of the period who are beginning to see that, well, painting no longer meant what it once did. Certainly by the end of the 19th century, everyone thought um, um, art had lost its preeminence as a human mode of understanding. But Hegel says art remains for us a thing of the past. He doesn't say art is a thing of the past, so it's a tricky claim. Um, to my mind, the very best commentary on this is by Robert Pippin in a book of his called After the Beautiful, where he tries to think about the meaning of Hegel's claim for the unfolding of abstract painting. But much as I like and admire Robert's book, I've, I've you know, said to him um, when we met um, in, in, in King's College in June at the Hegel conference we had on Hegel and art history, that I think actually Shakespeare's afterlife is a more interesting way of thinking through the status of art in Hegel's claims. Because in Shakespeare, we have a figure in whom, um, in, um, in whose afterlife we can trace, let's say, the birth and vitality of a number of artistic media. The novel is one, but to me, film is another. How much Shakespeare has mattered to film. Stanley Cavell is wonderful on this, on how Shakespeare essentially invents the genre of romantic comedy um, or of the melancholy woman um, out of thin air. And it's as if film is still working through something that Shakespeare asked us to work through four centuries ago. Um, so for that reason, I, I like the remains idea. There's something in, um, in, in our classical world that really is gone for us. And much as we might love Shakespeare and gather here on a, sun, on a Saturday morning, you know, most of London's off doing other things. Um, <laughs> And we're, and we're okay with that. Nevertheless, Shakespeare remains a, a kind of popular figure, a kind of vital figure, even without going by that name. Um, even in the worst Hollywood romantic comedy that doesn't mention Shakespeare and doesn't seemingly owe anything to his direct plots, something's there that's being worked through. So, um, so I, I see Hegel, I, I tend to read Hegel with Robert, as, as leaving us a way to think about how um, self-reflexive forms of art keep giving birth to each other failing and succeeding as sense-making practices, uh, and that Shakespeare remains for us one of the most alive, one of the most modernist um, 
That's why I was cheekily trying to suggest that Shakespearean tragedy began with Shakespeare, but didn't end with Shakespeare. This is a statement that you've made very powerfully in that wonderful essay, The Charm Dissolves Apace. Yeah. That you contributed to the collection that I edited on Shakespeare and Contemplative Philosophy. What have you to say to Habermas's point then that there is um, in the Enlightenment an ordeal of consciousness, that Enlightenment marks the moment of the entry into modernity as a reflection on the self from which we cannot escape, Yes. Uh, which is an ordeal of consciousness yes, absolutely. in an almost Jamesian way. Yeah, yeah. Well, everything I tried to say about subjects leading their lives, was, was that was my attempt to say that thought. So the idea that we're inescapably subjective positions on the world, not merely objects in the world, that we are in some way directing our lives, however provisionally, however much we fail, however there are psychic forces working behind our back um, to which Habermas was attuned, um, there, we haven't lost, we haven't been able to give up the thought that we're directors of our lives for this reason. We don't know what it would be to give that up first personally. So it's very easy to say, my relationship with my mother determines my career. You know, with Freud. Very hard to know what that would mean for me to say that and live that out. So, this, so the, the inescapability of the first personal, of the subjective, is something I think Shakespeare is utterly essential for thinking with. Um, because Hamlet is, to my mind, just about that. The disappearance of any objective God's eye point of view on what's happening in Elsinore, um, even on the audience's part, um, and so the inevitability of coming to grips with who I am first personally, who you are then second personally, those kinds of problems are what the inheritance of the Enlightenment um, means. There was an extraordinary poignant moment in your lecture where you used the phrase, um, the, 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 the reflection on our own actions and the realization that we have nothing but our own actions. But our actions. Why did you do that and say that? Yeah. Paul Cotman, I, I think and I hope that during the course of the day you will be coming back into Yes, um, most of because it. I'm uh, very, very <laughs> conscious of, of, of our timetable, our determinism, in fact, yes. and we have no more freedom. Yeah. Um, so uh, can I thank you for giving us um, uh, not only uh, an event today, but a marvellous demonstration of thinking through Shakespeare uh, and of using Shakespeare to press thought forward um, in a, into a realm of freedom. Um, this is a realm of freedom, this special space. Let's enjoy it now. Paul Kaufman, thank you very much. Thank you.